have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn to Revelation 19, because we're going to be digging in to Revelation 19, uh, verses 1 through 10, particularly verses 1 through 6. And the reason we're coming here is because we're going to look at the original Hallelujah Chorus, okay? And so that's the first thing I want you to see in your notes, is that Revelation 19 contains the original Hallelujah Chorus, all right? And so let me just ask you this question, and you can just shout it out. What comes to your mind when you hear Hallelujah Chorus? What comes to your mind? The greatness of God, what? Handles Messiah. Messiah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Randy is deep into this series, and I'm glad you think that. You should think that, right? But it's common to think of Handles Messiah. And when is Handles Messiah often played? At Christmas. So I want to take a poll because this is serious stuff. People debate this. And so here's your poll. When is Christmas music supposed to be played? All right. And this was Audra's idea. She was very excited about this. And so you can be on Team Kirk, Kirk Polo, anytime, even in June. This is them. They just got back from Disney. And I'm sure they were playing uh, Christmas music on the way. Or Team Chris. Uh, we would, uh, on Halloween, October 31st, is the official day to start playing Christmas music. Or you're with Team Audra, and if you don't know, and we've talked about it before because it's very important, uh, Audra does the turkey dance, right? You dance with the turkey, like the real turkey, like the turkey you're going to eat, right? But you always play music from this, right? Yes, and so I, I couldn't download this from Facebook. I, I was so frustrated, but that is a picture of her during the turkey. So do you, you listen to Christmas music when? After Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving. So uh, how many of you are with Kirk? There's a few. There's a, oh, good, 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 good. How many are with me after Halloween? My wife. Thank you, dear. I appreciate that. How many of you with Audra? Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Well, all right. But I tell Audra, I, see, I don't skip any holidays to start doing that, right? Even in our grow group for, oh, I don't know how many years. We always have a Thanksgiving meal as a group. And so, anyway, probably one of the most special memories for many people is Handel's Messiah played at Christmas time. My brother, uh, I was into art in high school at Oak Park. He was into orchestra. And so we would go to his orchestra concerts. And I remember many a time hearing Handel's Messiah. But sometimes we forget that the original Hallelujah Chorus was written by God. It was revealed in Revelation, here in Revelation 19, and applies not to his first coming, but to his second coming. It includes, Handel's Messiah, includes the, all, the whole life of Christ, but the original Hallelujah Chorus is, is embedded into his second coming. So, what's the connection to our world outreach celebration? We just came out of world outreach. Well, here is heaven's response to the fulfillment of the Great Commission at the final consummation in history. Where, as we give, as we pray, as we just did, as we give through faith promise, as we send out missionaries and support them, and as they go, and, and we welcome 
the people of the nations that are passing by and living in our neighborhoods and crossing our paths, where's it going to all end? It's going to end in Revelation 19. And so for the hallelujah doxology that we've been studying, if you look there in your notes, you have we've gone through 146 to 150. We've seen the choice to praise the Lord, the causes to do it, the center of it, heaven and earth, praising the name of the Lord. We've seen the celebration where the bloody bridegroom and his beautiful bride come together to conquer, which is what's happening in Revelation 19, and the final consummation. But we also looked at Psalm 67, and we saw that missions exist because worship doesn't. That our goal in sending missionaries is that so people will come to Christ and join in giving Him the glory in exalting Him in the hallelujah chorus that we're going to look at. And so Revelation 19 is our final place to go. Now, that's the connection to the hallelujah chorus. In Revelation 19, the hope of all that we've been studying through this series is fulfilled. The hope is finally fulfilled. So look in your Bibles and um, let's uh, read these verses and see these hallelujah chorus. Look at Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down, worshipped God who sits on the throne. And here's what they said. Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God. And notice, give praise to our God is, is really almost identical to saying, give him a hallelujah. All you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And that really brings to mind Handel's Messiah. Now notice something about this. Hallelujah in the New Testament only occurs four times in the entire New Testament. And it only occurs in one place. And we just read the, the place. It's Revelation 19. It's, it's amazing to me as we have moved through the, this Old Testament promise of this coming hallelujah. This coming praise party given in the honor of God's name. That there's one place where hallelujah shows up again. And it's when that party is about to be celebrated. That is just a beautiful thing. Now what's the context that leads up to this? I don't want to just jump into Revelation 19 and not show you the context. The context is the entire book of Revelation. 
as it unfolds, particularly in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 4, John is taken up into heaven and he sees the scroll in the hand of God on his throne. And that scroll is the fulfillment and the inheritance of the coming kingdom. It's like the inheritance scroll to be able to fulfill all of God's purposes. And no one is able to open the scroll. And John is weeping. And he's, he's weeping. He says, and, and the angel says to him, No, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns around expecting to see a messianic king. And what he sees is a lamb that was slain, but is standing risen. Remember in Psalm 149, we talked about the raising up of the horn. And he sees that and he takes it. And on the scroll are seven seals. And you have to break those seals. You have to have the authority to break those seals to start fulfilling God's final kingdom purposes. And the lamb begins to do that. And what we see is he comes to the seventh seal is opened. In chapter 8. And when the seventh seal is opened, there's now seven trumpets announcing the fulfillment of God's plan. And so the book of Revelation goes through those seven trumpets. And then in chapter 11, you come to the seventh and climactic, perfecting, fulfilling trumpet. And that trumpet is blown. And now seven bowls of final wrath are going to be poured out. And so Revelation takes us through those seven bowls of final wrath. And those happen, the seventh bowl, the final climactic wrath of God comes in chapters 15 and 16. And what they do is that final bowl pours out wrath on the great whore of Babylon. And Babylon there represents all of the world system with all the political rulers and all their immorality, all their greed, all of their living for the world, the flesh, and the devil, instead of giving honor to God, taking that honor for themselves. And in chapters 17 and 18, God's wrath is poured out. And the unbelieving on the earth at that time, they wail, they lament. But you know what God's people do? Revelation 19, when that wrath is poured out, we let out a hallelujah chorus. We let out a four-time, four-fold hallelujah. And so that's the context I want you to see. In other words, as I've used this illustration of Emeril Lagasse, the Food Channel chef, what's happening in his chapter 19 is the ultimate shout to kick it up a notch. Bam! Now it's time. Now it's time. All that we have been studying, all that our missionaries are going out to do, all that we are trying to do here in Kansas City, the fulfillment comes. Bam! Kick it up a notch. It's time to let out a fourfold hallelujah. Now, I realize that this is in the future. And maybe you're sitting here today and, you, and, and, I, and I know this. I know this because as a shepherd, the sheep talk and they, 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 they reach out. They need help. Listen, not everybody's in a place right now where we want to shout hallelujah. You understand that? Not everybody 
feels like shouting hallelujah. Not everybody, not everything is going well for any of us, right? Now, I mean, we're in a fallen world. So, you know, if you're skating by and everything's going great, I don't know what's going on in your life because we're living in a fallen world. But what I want you to see this morning is this. We have a fourfold reason that we can shout hallelujah in the darkest of times. We can shout hallelujah in the most difficult of times. And when we do, we become stronger in the Lord because God inhabits the praise of his people. And we can stand strong if we'll look at these four eternal reasons. So are you ready to kick it up a notch? All right. Yes, that, I love it. Yes, Dana, give me four bams. Bam, 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 bam. Let's do it. Number one, here's the first one. The first hallelujah, the first eternal reason to always shout is praise the Lord for his powerful salvation. Praise the Lord for his powerful salvation. Look again at verse 1. The first thing out of their mouth, the first hallelujah, after the final bowl of judgment is being poured out, what happens? After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now that should look familiar to you. Because in our world outreach celebration and the whole month uh, preceding it, we have been looking at the theme, salvation belongs to the Lord. And they're saying it has belonged to him all along. And now here's the fulfillment of it. So let's look at three reasons to praise the Lord for his powerful salvation. The first is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs. That's the idea. And I want, you, I want to break down each of these three aspects. Salvation, glory, and power. Salvation looks at the majesty of his, the magnificence of his salvation that reveals his majestic glory because it is displaying his mighty power. I mean, these all go together. So let's look at it. First of all, all of this salvation is a gift of God's grace. It's a gift of God's grace. It belongs to him, not to us. He has to freely give it. We can't demand it. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's his prerogative to save and to judge. Now, I just want you to think about three words. Judgment is getting what we deserve. And what do we all deserve? Hell, eternal judgment. We deserve, judgment is getting what we deserve. And every person, for all have fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. We all deserve judgment. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And so when we look at Revelation 19, we don't know when this is going to be fulfilled. It could happen at any time. It could happen. It could begin the process, could happen at any time. But we know this. For more than 2,000 years, all the way in the Old Testament, all the way until, ever since the day that Adam and Eve disobeyed, God has shown mercy to mankind. Everyone gets mercy. Why? Because mercy is not getting what we deserve. And the moment we descend, what do we deserve? Judgment. 
And so every morning that you get up is an act of mercy. Every morning that the unbeliever gets up in order to live for self, worship idols, and, and defame the name of the Lord is an act of mercy. But the third word I want you to understand is grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And the way we get saving grace is we have to respond to God by faith. So unbelievers get mercy. And to be honest with you, they get a lot of common grace. Sunshine is common grace. Rain is common grace. The ability to walk or to speak or to act is common grace. But saving grace comes only through the gospel. And that's why we do world outreach. That's why we emphasize in our gospel-centered. And so salvation is this gift of grace that we need to hear about and then respond by faith. Secondly, all the glory is due to our God. All the glory is due our God. And if we had time, I'd take you... You ought to just periodically read... Uh, Ephesians through, uh, 1, 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. In the Greek, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one hairy long sentence. But in that sentence, we are reminded who gets the glory for our salvation. The Father planned or predestined our salvation from before creation. And here's what Paul says. He did it. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Then he talks about how the son purchased our salvation by his own blood. And he ends with this. He, he purchased our salvation to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Then he moves on to the spirit. How the Spirit is given as a pledge of our salvation. And he ends with these words. To the praise of his glory. So even there in Ephesians. The reason we praise his salvation is because all the glory is due to him. The Father planned it. The Son purchased it. And the Spirit is our pledge and protects it. And how is this all possible? All the power All the power is from our God. All the power is from our God. It's amazing when you read the book of Revelation. In Revelation 4, the creator God is revealed and the heavens respond, giving him glory, power, honor is due your name. Then in Revelation 7, we see the Son the Lamb who redeemed us and shed His blood and all of the multitude sings, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And then we come here to Revelation 19 and we see that God fulfills our salvation. He is the judge who overthrows all His enemies. And what do the people sing? Glory, salvation, power unto our God. It's just all throughout. So let me just say this as a warning to you, or better, a reminder. We can get all caught up in the book of Revelation thinking about who the Antichrist is and how this is going to be fulfilled. And those things are important. I've taught on it. I'll teach on it again. And I'm a firm believer that we can understand the book of Revelation. But don't miss 
that salvation belongs to the Lord. Don't miss that this is why we praise Him. Isn't it beautiful? It's just all for His praise. It's not about us. It is about Him. And so that's the first hallelujah. And this hallelujah is... Well, we've got to keep going. I'm getting off track. Salvation involves three tenses. This is another reason to praise Him. And this, I want to throw this out. Salvation has three tenses. And here's the tenses. There's a past. We've been saved in the past. We get saved when we accept Christ. Have, I, I think all of us are very familiar with praising God. for our. When I say praise God for your salvation, what do we think of? Back when we accepted Christ. But there's a present tense to salvation. He is still saving us. Because we have a body of sin and we struggle with sin. And so that's called sanctification. Past salvation is justification, a declaration of the penalty of sin. Present salvation is called sanctification and it delivers us from the power of sin. We can say no to sin, but there's a future tense to salvation and that's called glorification. And that's where we're delivered from the presence of sin. Not just the penalty, not just the power, but praise God, it's no longer present in my heart. It's no longer present in this world. And that's the salvation that we're praising Him for. It has finally come. The kingdom has come. Glorification is happening. And we are being delivered. And then... Thirdly, salvation results in a great multitude in heaven giving a holy shout. Who is this multitude? It's all his elect angels, as we saw in Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Who else is this great multitude? It's his godly ones, his loyal lovers, his faithful covenant keepers. We saw that in Psalm 148. He lifted up a horn for his people, praise for his godly ones, even the sons of Israel, a people near to him. And it's all those, this multitude is all those that we've prayed for that we've never met in Mongolia, in Belgium, in Latin America. It's people that we have given money to. Given money in order for the gospel. We didn't give money to them. We gave money so the gospel would go to them. That's who this multitude is. And you'll meet them. And you'll see them. And you'll be rewarded for your faithful giving, your faithful praying. The reward will be them in the presence of our Lord. Isn't that great? And so, Sunday night when we were down here for Celebrate Unplugged, the last thing we did, Jeremy led us in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And all God's people say, Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's the first hallelujah. God's powerful salvation. Here's the second hallelujah. Praise the Lord for His perfect justice. His perfect justice. Look at verses 2 and 3. There's another hallelujah coming. 
We praise him not only for salvation, but we praise him for his judgment. Look at verses 2 and 3. Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now we could go deep into this, but I've just got, I've got uh, four things I want to say about God's perfect justice. The first is this, the Lord's justice is a perfect recompense and vengeance. Recompense and vengeance. You say, Chris, what is recompense? It's reap what you sow justice. Everything that happens in the book of Revelation, the judgment, these seven bowls that are poured out, it is perfect recompense where every unbeliever is getting exactly what they deserve. And you know how Revelation emphasizes that? Is that all throughout Revelation, you see this repeated refrain, and they did not repent. And they did not fear God. And they did not repent. Even as the judgment is being poured out. Look in the book of Revelation. You don't see anyone repenting in the book of Revelation. And they did not repent. They're even hiding in caves. They're even praying for rocks to fall on them. To hide them from the holiness of God's wrath. And they still won't repent. They are getting that which they deserve. And there is vengeance. And you say, what's vengeance? Making wrongs right. The kind of justice that makes wrongs right. And he avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. All throughout history, from the blood of Abel, spilled by his unbelieving brother Cain, down through Israel's history, down through church history, the blood of God's saints have been spilled on the ground and is crying out for vengeance, and God will avenge on that day. Now, the question is, is it right to rejoice over God's perfect judgment of sinners? Is this, this just doesn't, is this what we should be doing? Is this what we will do? Yes, we will. Because the Bible itself commands. Revelation 19.2 is the obedient response to a divine, king, uh, a divine command given in 18 verse 20. So look at 18 verse 20, just a few verses before. Look at what happens in 18 verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Rejoice. That's the command. And what's the answer? Hallelujah. Your judgments are righteous and true. It is biblical. It is right. Rejoicing is not only right, but we learned in Psalm 149, it's an honor for us to join God in this judgment. Later in Revelation 19, the Lord comes on a white horse with his saints, with his saints in linen, riding and coming. We execute judgment with the Lord. Secondly, what makes this right and perfect is the Lord's justice is perfect, is 
perfectly true and perfectly righteous. It's perfect truth and perfect righteousness. It couldn't be any clearer in verse 2. Why do we rejoice? Because these judgments are true and righteous. What does true mean? Consistent with the crime. Consistent with the crime. It's deserving. There's no partiality. There's no grading on the curve. Everyone will get fully what they deserve. It's going to be true. And it's going to be righteous. What's that mean? According to God's standards and not man's standards. Now, what is wrong with every act of justice in this present world? It's done by, it's done by fallen people, right? Even good people, even Christians who are judges. We, it's imperfect, right? And often, as Dan just said, it's not only imperfect, it's done by sinful men, and it is corrupt, and it is unjust, it is unfair, it is hypocritical. I just barely can watch, I barely can watch, even watch the news anymore for the hypocrisy, the injustice, and it's not one party, it's not, it, it's across the board. That's why we don't put our hope in any one political party, though there might, there, there, there not might be, there are parties better to vote for than others and there are candidates to vote for that are better than others. We know that. But at the end of the day, our hope is not in earthly justice. Amen. It's in God's divine justice that's true and it's according to his righteous standards. It's absolute. There's no parole. There's no second chance. There's no bribes. There's bribes. There's no saying you deserve death, but you're going to get off in five years. That is out the window. It is righteous. It is just. Remember what the martyrs said, cry out uh, under the altar in heaven. They cry out this in Revelation 6. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And you know what God says to them? Rest a little while longer. So are you facing injustice right now? I've felt betrayal. I've felt being wrongly accused. It hurts and it goes deep. And some of those wounds won't be healed until Christ comes back. But my Lord is ever faithful and true. And he says to me, you have my righteousness. I have declared you just. You just wait a little longer. You just wait because one day there's going to be a hallelujah. Isn't that good? I don't know about you, but I'm glad I came today. Let me just read this quote, and then I have to move on. It could appear to some that rejoicing over judgment is something less than a Christian response. Should the destruction of a mighty city and effect upon all who do business with it be the cause of universal rejoicing? The answer is that it is not the actual suffering of those who are punished. He brings... Uh, The answer is, it's not the actual suffering of those who are punished. He brings rejoicing that brings rejoicing on the part of the redeemed. But the fact that God has vindicated his cause in the world, nothing less than God's character is at stake. 
the one who promised the martyrs that their willingness to sacrifice their lives would not go unrequited must of necessity bring judgment on their oppressors. The redeemed shout hallelujah, not because tyrants are suffering, but because God has vindicated himself by bringing about the punishment they deserve. We are praising not the suffering, but the sovereign attributes of God who are, that is being displayed. That's the second reason, his perfect justice. Let's go to the third hallelujah. Praise the Lord for his purifying worship. Oh, I'm so, oh no, no, go back, go back, I'm sorry. The Lord's justice is perfect. I'm glad you have these slides, Otter. Perfectly sobering and liberating. Because here's what I want to leave. There's, listen, there's a time for lamenting over the loss, and there's a time for rejoicing judgment. Listen, this should sober us. For the judgment that we will rejoice over is judgment that we deserved apart from the grace of God. Are you, are you with me? It's sobering. It's sobering. And yet it is liberating because it frees us to praise the one to whom salvation belongs. It makes us appreciate that but for the grace of God, there goes I. So it's sobering. Now we weep over the loss, but one day we will rejoice over God's judgment. And so what this does is it frees us to be like God to the lost now. Be long-suffering like He is long-suffering. Be merciful like He is merciful. Show kindness like He, show, he shows kindness. You see, we are free to be like our Lord towards the lost. All right. Now, the third hallelujah. Praise the Lord for his purifying worship. Look at verses 4 and 5. And the 24 elders. Oh, God. You know, I just messed this whole point up. I totally messed that up. Go back. This will kill me. Go back one more. I didn't talk about this. The Lord's justice is perfect in duration. Don't miss that in Revelation, this is eternal judgment. It's eternal. And it's perfect in its severity. Always burning, never ending. It's called eternal conscious torment. People don't cease to exist when God judges them. They live forever Suffering the eternal wrath of God because God is eternal whom they have rebelled against. And they must pay the wages. And because God is eternal and their rebellion is against one who is worth, is, is so worthy, it will last forever. And in Revelation 20.10, it says this in Revelation 20:10 the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever you can't get away from that language and i don't want to blame the devil for me screwing up this point but it doesn't surprise me on this point about eternal judgment that i got it all screwed up for you I'm sorry for that. 
Because the devil wants everything to distract us away from the reality of eternal wrath, okay? So God's grace is greater. All right, finally, can we get to the third hallelujah? Thank you, Audra. Praise the Lord for his purifying worship. So we see verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down. They worship God who sits on the throne, saying for a fourth time, but notice this time, amen, hallelujah. And the voice came from the throne. Whose voice is that? Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. In other words, worship him. Bam, kick it up a notch. It's the hallelujah chorus that we have been studying. The first thing I want you to see on this, worship is the number one occupation and preoccupation in heaven for all of eternity. This is what God, they've been doing in heaven since Isaiah. He saw, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And here we are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We will laugh in eternity. We will work in eternity, but we're going to all do it in the presence of the Lord. And we are going to do it as an act of worship. And let me encourage you, those of you, all of us, as we work now, we can worship while we work. And we, we worship during the week as we, la- as we know the real meaning of live, laugh, and love. We do it in the Lord and we worship Him. Secondly, the bleeding lamb and the roaring lion is worthy of our praise. It's Him that we will worship. He is worthy and then second, thirdly, every amen is about to be answered. Every amen. This is like the final or the greatest amen in all of eternity. Amen. Now, what does amen mean? It is true and let it be. It is true and let it be. And when this judgment comes and the kingdom comes with it, we are going to shout. And you know how we, we do this? And it's a good practice. And all God's people said, well, that's what's going to happen then. But it's going to be like this whole multitude of amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Every amen is going to be answered because the son has come with his kingdom. The fourth hallelujah. Let's look at this. Praise the Lord for his pervasive or permanent sovereignty. Look at verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters. It's Niagara Falls, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. All of those are associated with God showing up on Mount Sinai. Now God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit are coming down to earth and we shout, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let me give you just two points on this. First, this is our daily confidence. This is our daily confidence. Our God reigns. And notice in your notes, Lord is not in all caps. It's not in all caps. We are honoring not merely the I am God who keeps his promises. This is the sovereign ruler over disease, over suffering, over betrayal. 
He is the Lord. And guess what? This sovereign God is our God. He's our God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is almighty. And that's why it's going to happen. That's why it's going to happen. He can do it. He will do it. He must do it according to his character and according to his word. This is our daily confidence. Our God reigns. And then secondly, this is our daily cry. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Boom. Bam. Hallelujah. It has come. And I want to introduce to you. And what I have in your notes, with this coming, all the rest of Revelation unfolds. All the rest, the final coming, the kingdom coming, those eight events all follow this fourfold hallelujah. On, at 12 noon on April 13th, 1742, the world first heard the lovely overture, the memorable arias, and majestic choruses of the most famous oratorio ever written. There has not been a year since 1742 that George Frederick Handel's Messiah has not been performed in concert halls around the world, especially at Christmas. And you know what's interesting is Handel purposely wrote this with the minimum number of instruments to be able to play it. Because he wanted the most number of people to enjoy it. It just reminds me of Psalm 150 with all those instruments. Some fancy, but many normal. God wants, Handel wanted people to praise the Lord. The scriptures are, are almost taken directly verbatim from the Old Testament and the New. And they're linked together to reveal God's big story. He succeeded in his attempt intent to glorify God the Messiah portrays Christ as the son of God the fulfillment of prophecy savior of the world and coming king during the first performance of Handel's Messiah in London attended by King George II as the first notes of the triumphant hallelujah chorus rang out the king rose to his feet and remained standing until the end of the chorus and that is a practice that remains true still today. Remember going to my brother's orchestra concerts and it would come and he'd always say, now remember, you guys got to stand up. You got to stand up in honor of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I want you to look at this video uh, and take a look.
Because what better way to picture, this is what we should be doing in the mall, at work, at home, is we should be praising. And as we praise, we point the loss to the one who is worthy of all our praise. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hallelujah doxology. Thank you for the the final fulfillment that we see revealed. May we be ready and may we bring others with us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said one last time.
Hallelujah and amen. Amen.